2: Welcome to Intuitive Connection, where spirituality and psychology meet to help you be your best and brightest self. I'm your host, Victoria Shaw, and in each episode, I'll help you to awaken your own inner wisdom, step into your power, and live a more divinely inspired life. You're here to let your inner light shine. Are you ready? Let's do this. All right. Hello and welcome to Intuitive Connection. This week, we have a guest, Jennifer Moore, and I'm really excited because she was a connection from another soon-to-be-repeat guest, Laura Powers, who has connected me with so many cool people that you have probably seen on this show. So I'm excited to have Jennifer here. Jennifer is the author of Empathic Mastery. She's an intuitive mentor, energy healer, and master trainer for EFT International. So Jen,
1: welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Victoria. I'm so delighted to be here.
2: I'm so delighted to have you. So I think we were going to talk a little bit today about empaths, right? We were going to talk a little bit about empaths. Yeah. That is a, a topic that's near and dear to my heart because I identify as an empath and teach about that gift widely and have been doing so as long as I've been doing this work. Yeah. And it's always fun to have a new perspective. So tell us a little bit about your book, about your work, and we'll go from there.
1: Okay, so as you said, you know, in the intro, I am the author of Empathic Mastery, and the subtitle is a five-step system to go from emotional hot mess to thriving success. And, (laughs) you know, right here, former emotional hot mess and world-class awfulizer. And basically, I have always like you, I identify as an empath and I've been picking up the thoughts, the feelings, the energy, the sensations from the world around me. As a kid, I really didn't understand that the reason that I was constantly in a state of distress was not because there was something wrong with me, but because I was really sensitive. And it took me a number of years and sort of like a process of first just even coming to understand what it means to be an empath, then really starting to be able to recognize that I was feeling out of sorts, because a lot of times I wasn't even knowing that I was off. And so it was sort of like recognizing I was out of sorts. And then from that recognizing I was out of sorts, starting to ask the question, is this even mine? And then going beyond that to starting to ask, what's mine? What's not mine? The thing is, it may be really easy to say what I just said in like a a soundbite, but the process to come to recognize oneself as an empath recognize that we are picking up empathic distress, then to start discerning whether or not it's ours or not, and then really starting to do the deep work of like, what's mine, what's not mine, where is this coming from? That is a process and a journey that has taken me many, many, many years. And so in this process, I've gone from being in a state of a great deal of distress, not really knowing why I was feeling so out of sorts and uncomfortable, as well as coming away with, because I've been a psychic and an intuitive and doing this work since basically I got out of art school, or actually it wasn't even out of art school. I picked up tarot cards while I was in art school and started reading for people. And I've been doing it pretty much since my late teens, early twenties. And so I was doing the service work and the support work. And then sort of that led me to become a healer for a really long time. And I was good at what I did, but I was taking a hit for what I did because I was constantly absorbing their stuff and then really worrying about like what was going to happen to them and perseverating about it and, and just feeling really distressed. So in my own journey, learning how to recognize what's mine, what's not mine, and really starting to grasp the magnitude of what it means to be an empath, I just... Got lit on fire with the desire and the uh, sense of like mission, urgency, like the call to support other people in recognizing themselves as empaths, recognizing what it means to be an empath, and being able to do things in a really different way. Because I really believe that when an empath is in that hot mess, world-class awfulizing, picking up all the thoughts, feelings, energy, and sensations from the world, the problem is we amplify the pain in the world. We don't really do anything good for the world, whereas when we start to gain control over that sensitivity, and we start to be able to access our light and our calm and our healing, then we actually become broadcasters for an alternative in the world, instead of just reinforcing all that negativity. So hopefully, that's
2: enough of an answer of like, who am I and what do I do? But I figure we'll just talk and it will all come out in the wash. You know, that's a beautiful answer. And, you know, when I teach about empaths and I just taught a class, but, Mm -hmm. and we have a very similar perspective, right? I've been told by my guides again and again and again, and have communicated this to hundreds, you know, of clients that when we tune into the pain channel for ourselves or for others, but, you know, we want to pay attention to ours and manage ours and, and work with what's in our space for sure. But when we leave our lane and go into someone else's and we... Interact with their pain. We are increasing. Mm-hmm. We are increasing. We we may temporarily relieve them of their suffering in the short term because it is possible to take you know someone's burden onto yourself temporarily. They will create more. Yeah, and you will be miserable. But also, when we tune into those channels, we are bringing the vibe of the planet down. Mm-hmm. Yes. But one of the messages that I've been getting so strongly from the guides recently, I think it's what you were getting at, but it's a little bit different than what I understood or taught up until now is that empaths, many of us are really here actually, to hold the higher vibration mm-hmm. as we move into the new age as we go through this transition. So as we can learn to use that amazing channel that we have and that interconnectedness we have with, you know, the emotional state of the world and then some, right? When we can learn to anchor that into the higher channels, then we're going to be the beacons of light that guide humanity to the next level. And that's what we all want to do. Exactly.
1: (laughs) Yes. Well, I hope that's what we all want to do, and especially empaths. And I think part of it is that, you know, we are absolute barometers for the way things feel in the world. We are barometers for when things feel absolute. Like, let's say we feel like total poop, you know, versus when we can feel and access what's right, what's good in the world. We are barometers for that. We can absolutely recognize it. And I think as a result, we have an ability to help steer things in a direction that is good because we do feel better when the world feels better. That is just true. Yeah. I do think personally that one of the real kind of secrets of the universe is not wallowing in pain, but also not resisting pain and not avoiding pain. That if there's one thing I've definitely discovered is that Often as empaths, we rush into rescue and we get sucked into kind of urgency and wanting to fix things because we don't want to deal with the despair or the pain or the grief or the energy that is within ourselves, like the shadow that is inside of ourselves. And what I have found is that the more comfortable I am with my own dark nights of the soul and my own despair and my own moments of just really feeling grief, loss, fear, anger, whatever, quote, negative emotion it is, the more I can hold space for somebody else in that space without needing to fix it and without needing to make it better. So what I've actually found is that I think a lot of the work we also are here to do is the work of holding space and transmuting the emotions, that it's not just that kind of like just think positive thoughts when everything is going to like H E double L, you know,
2: in a handbasket. When it seems like that, because it really yeah. doesn't have to be. No, it doesn't have to be. But no, I hear ya. And I think that is true. What I often teach people, and what I've often been told again from my guidance is. Every time you feel into someone else's distress, it is an opportunity to take it back to you. Yes, and tend to what's going on within you. Tend
1: to what's going on with you. Yeah, and I really do believe that so often the distress that we are picking up from the outside world is resonating within us because there's something going on inside of us that it can get a purchase on. Yes. If you know, there's that that image of like resonant chords and like how. I just remember this really clearly struck a chord for me when I was much younger, but the idea of if you have stringed instruments in a room and they're tuned to each other, you can pluck the string on one And the other string that is tuned to that frequency will vibrate on another instrument. And I really think that that is part of what happens for empaths is that whether it's ancestral stuff, whether it is karmic stuff, whether it's just from this lifetime, that a lot of times the things that we are picking up on, there's a seed within us that it is activating and is amplifying. And so I couldn't agree with you more that our job is to look at, okay, what is it about me? that I need to address and deal with. And in my experience, when I ask the question, is this mine? The answer is pretty much like 95, 96, 97% of the time, maybe even 99% of the time, the answer is yes. And that it's that part of it is mine. Part of it is not mine. And I just, I really agree with you about like part of my work in the book is really talking about sort of checking ourselves before we wreck ourselves in terms of diving into other people's stuff. Because one of the sort of habits that I've seen a lot of us as empaths do is if we sense distress without consent or permission, we'll ping people and we'll kind of go into their energy system and try to figure out what's going on. And when we don't know any better, this is something we naively and innocently do, especially if we grew up in family systems that were uncertain or unstable, where we needed to use that ability to figure things out. I totally get that that was, you know, it was a survival mechanism. But once we start becoming what I call the responsible empath or the empowered empath, then it really becomes a choice. Are we going to go there? And so, you know, part of my thing is a lot of times it's like, don't go there little buckaroo, like that we do get to choose about not diving into
2: the pain. Yeah. I love that because I know for myself, that was a real revelation to see, and it still happens, you know, to, Mm -hmm. to learn that I was trolling, you know, in, in a loving kind way, probably, but it was just a habit of checking in, checking in with other people's energy, the people around me to make sure I was safe, to make sure they were safe. And again, totally a habit from childhood. And I think that a lot of people do that without realizing that they're doing it, but in so doing, that's actually how you're sponging. You know, yes. you're sponging because you have those little tentacles going out, checking on everybody. Checking on everybody. Yeah. Yes. And and I mean, I grew up in a family
1: with a mother who was very sensitive and empathic and very intuitive, but also didn't have a vocabulary for it, had left the church and didn't replace it with anything. But she regarded worry as the highest form of virtue. Like for her. Worrying about people was like her way of expressing love. And so I grew up with somebody who demonstrated or modeled worry is the way that you do this. And so she was constantly spreading her feelers out and constantly picking up on the distress that was going on with all of her family members and certainly not doing anybody any favors by losing sleep every night and being completely distressed because there were things that she could not do anything. Thing about. You know, that's
2: amazing because I think a lot of people will resonate with that. Yeah.
0: Human design is a system that offers profound insights into your inner self and how you interact with the world around you. Quantum human design takes that process one step further
2: You know, one of the things that's come through to me too is, so we have these habits, we have these energetic habits that we've learned oftentimes for survival. Mm-hmm where we are checking in. and But we also have these belief systems around what it means to be a good human being. And for many of us, we have this conditioning that says, it is actually my job to caretake the planet. right? It is my job to worry about other people. And it, it is not, let me tell you. And I know Jen would agree. Yes, It is so not your job. Even if you are in the line of work that the two of us are in, we mm-hmm. have both learned that it's not our job. No, but a lot of us do have that conditioning. And so it's around undoing some of that too and reminding yourself your job is for yourself and that the highest form of love and care and compassion for another person is actually not worrying about them, not participating in their pain and not trying to take their pain away from them either because my guides have shown me for years that you know they've always given me this analogy, other people's pain is their gold. Mm -hmm. They have created it they can handle it. You may, as a guide, be able to help them navigate, negotiate, and free themselves from it, but you don't touch it. Mm -hmm. And we don't steal each other's currency, right? Yeah. And it's actually of benefit if they've created it for themselves.
1: I love the idea of of other people's pain is their gold and our pain is our gold because I know from my own experience, when I am willing to sit with my pain, when I am willing to look at what is going on underneath the hood and really not flinch, not run away from it, but be present with it like the gifts that I've received from it are so spectacular. And I always find it ironic and amusing how we have a willingness to endure our own distress. Like we'll carry our own cross and bear our own burden. But then somehow when we see somebody else carrying their cross, that it can feel, and you know, it's funny. I don't identify necessarily as a Christian, although, you know, Jesus is certainly one of my teachers, but it's funny likewise for, you know, using using that as an example. But I just think it's so funny as a culture how frequently, and in some ways, the idea of bearing the cross and carrying each other's crosses is actually deeply ingrained in our culture. Yeah. And yet it's just so ironic that somehow I think I'm capable of carrying mine, but that other people aren't. Care- capable of carrying theirs. And I really do think there's a bit of hubris in that perspective when we start thinking that not only are we responsible for or capable of dealing with our own challenges, but that somehow
2: we're going to be the ones who are going to be able to deal with other people's too. Right, exactly. And and this idea of who are you to think that it's your job, that you can do it better. Right, right. And respecting the integrity of every human being's experience. Like they got this, they got this.
1: Well, and for me, another part of it is like getting the perspective of where I fit on the bus. You know, for many years, I was the person who thought that I was supposed to be in the driver's seat with my hands on the wheel. And I mean, it's like, and my feet dangling above the seat, barely able to, if even able right. to touch the pedals. And when I really turned it over to divine source and said, you know, I am not responsible. Like, you know, these people have higher powers in their life and I am not it. The planet has a higher power in its life and I am not it or her life like I am a cell in the body of this earth I am not responsible for all of this and really getting out of like literally just sort of like asking my guides asking my guardians and angels to like lift my little batoxies off of the bus seat the driver's seat (laughs) and put me over the line and I have this image of like I have this little orange shopping bag that I got years ago I literally have this bag that I got years ago at Whole Foods with a pumpkin on it. And I just imagine I've got it's filled with like Capri Sun juice boxes. And I'm just going around giving juice boxes to the littles in the back of the bus and sitting down next to the one who might be a little bit upset and just going, look out the window. Isn't that interesting? What does your juice taste like? What's going on? That's my job. Like I'm not here to drive the bus and I cannot drive the bus. And and I personally believe that no human can drive the bus. collectively, we can make better choices, but that there is a divine
2: force that is substantially greater than us that is ultimately in charge of the flow. Right. Yeah. And it's about finding where you align with that. Yes. And trusting in that for yourself and for others. Totally. Yeah. And as you were talking to, I've, I've been thinking a lot of things, so many questions. But one of the things I was thinking a lot of people too, at least a lot of the clients that I work with and maybe people that are drawn to this particular conversation, because that's usually how it works. Some of us have this early childhood conditioning where we may have been born to parents or into families where the level of awareness was not at our highest level. Mm-hmm. You know, you may be a wiser soul, older, wiser, whatever. It's not a value. How about awakened? More awakened or more aware? More aware. Right. More aware I like because awakened's got its own. Yeah, And again, sometimes we come out a certain way and it still takes us a little bit time to catch up with ourselves. But I see that a lot. And I see that a lot with my clients too, where... You may actually be able to see how other people could solve the problems in their lives. You may be Mm -hmm. able to see where people are creating distress for themselves unnecessarily. Mm -hmm. And because you have that intuitive knowing, and a lot of us came in with it as children, right? We get this mistaken idea that we can fix and solve everybody's problems for them and that it's our job. And particularly if it's your parents or people close to you, you know, it becomes a matter of survival where you think, wow. Mommy's upset. I need to fix mommy so I can be safe. A lot of us have that conditioning too. You don't have to. (sighs) But I think what's important to recognize is just because you can see the path. First of all, sometimes we project and we just think we can and we're totally clueless. So there's that. (laughs) But even if you can, right? Even if you can see the way out for somebody else, it's their job to find their own way. Mm -hmm. We both provide guidance for a living. And I'm sure you work the way that I do. You know, I get out of the way and I let their high-end guidance talk through my mouth. So it's really what I think at all. But even, you know, if somebody comes to you and, you know, they still are in the driver's seat to decide what they're going to do. And this game of life is for us to discover on our own. So it doesn't even serve if, you know, first of all, if you tell someone your answer to their problem, they're probably not going to listen. Right. But that's actually not the answer they need. The one they always need is the one that's within them. And the only place they're going to find that is on their very own way in their very own time. Yeah. Well, and again, I mean,
1: this is such a rich conversation because this starts to go into like, what is the role of the healer? What is the role of the guide? What is the role of the facilitator? What are we here to do? And for me, one of the things about being a responsible, empowered empath is about the idea that aside from rare circumstances where I am in the role of either guardian for somebody who is not capable of speaking for themselves or advocating for themselves, like cognitively incapable of doing that. I'm not a parent, so I'm not in the role of having a child that I'm responsible for, but every so often I get put in a position where I'm the grown-up or being a first responder where somebody is literally incapable of taking care of themselves. Aside from those situations My belief is that I absolutely must have consent before I engage with any kind of intervention or any kind of energy support or anything like that. And that it really is, for me, it's about collaboration, it's about consent, it's about agreement. And even if I do get a flash and spirit, like one of the things I do is that my guides will be like, Tell me something for them. And I will actually be like, if I have not specifically, if I'm doing a reading and somebody's hired me to like channel information and just let it rip, I just like open up and just like they talk. But if I'm in a situation where I'm having a conversation with somebody, or I'm even in a situation where I'm doing some healing work with somebody and intuitive guidance comes through. I actually have a policy that I wait three times for the same piece of information to come through before I share it. And then the way that I will share it with people is I will say, you know, I've been getting this sense of something or I've been getting a flash or I've been getting a hit about this thing. Would you be interested in hearing it? Right. So I'm giving them choice about whether or not I'm going to share it. And then the other part of it for me is I had to learn to completely let go of any agenda and any investment into whether somebody was going to take it or not. And I had an experience years and years ago when I was working as a psychic, where I had this woman come into me who was at the time abusing narcotics. And I could see in the cards, they were very clear that if she kept going down the path she was on, she was going to die fairly soon. And when I saw that I mean, I was like, I was, I mean, I was in my mid to late 20s at the time. And so when I saw her story or her thing, I was like really distressed about it. And I was like, if you don't stop doing these things, you are going to die. And she kind of heard me and took the information and walked out of my shop. And I did not see her and I did not hear from her. And I figured, oh, well, there goes the junkie, like, you know, gone. Literally 20 years later, she walks into my brick and mortar studio in another state where I'm not even doing psychic readings. I was doing tattooing as a healing art. And she comes in and she's like, you did a reading for me 20 years ago. You told me that I was going to die if I didn't stop doing this thing. I got into rehab within weeks, months of this thing. I turned my life around.
0: Wow. Sometimes
1: we have no idea that if we offer the information, it is going to land. But I think it is so essential That we don't have an investment in whether or not it lands. Yeah. All we can do is offer it.
2: And you heard my little prayer because I I say almost the same prayer that I do before these recordings. and, And I've done it on the show a couple times. And a big part of that is where I release the outcome. I release the outcome. And let me tell you, because I feel into not so much anymore, because I've been doing this a long time, but Mm -hmm. I I still feel into each word to make sure that when I say it, I'm aligned with it. Mm -hmm. And that is always the hardest one. You know, I'm better now, but that was historically the hardest one, letting go of the outcome of the work. And I remember years ago having a client, very sweet client, and she said to me, Victoria, I hate when you say that. Because when you say I'm releasing the outcome to how this is supposed to go, I feel like you don't care about me. Mm, mm -hmm. You don't care about how I'm doing. And, you know, and I'm like, no, you know, nothing can be for, and and that was my conditioning too. Like it was great that she put that in my face for me. But of course it's the deepest level of caring Yes, and respect when we can say I'm aligned, I'm going to share what comes through, I'm going to do my part, and then I'm going to hand the baton back to you because I respect you and your power. And um, I'm going to let you figure out what you're going to do with it and Mm -hmm. respect, you know, your own integrity. And I respect you to be able to figure that out. And I'm out, right? That to me is the highest form of compassion and love.
1: And the thing is, also, when we worry about people, we weaken their energy system and we also are perceiving them as less than. Right. Whenever we perceive them as incapable of finding their own solutions, whenever we see them as being like, oh, I just know he's going to make a total mistake when our will gets engaged with it, it does not strengthen anybody for us to put our ego agenda and will into what we think they should be doing because it is so disempowering. It's just so incredibly disempowering. Whereas when we can be like, here you are here we're having this conversation i behold you in your sovereignty you behold me in my sovereignty you know and you get to make choices and i mean sometimes it's painful i mean there are dear ones in my life who have made particularly who are struggling with substance abuse issues you know in and out of rehabs and making just not quite ready to make the better choice and yet it's their journey it's their life and I've gotten a lot from my father passed over back in 2020. It's been really, and he's been very readily accessible since then. And he and I have had many, many conversations, but I can also really see how we have a very limited perspective about the learning curve when we only limit it to the blip of this one life and where we sort of think that somehow we're supposed to get it all figured out in this one individual lifetime in this body, right? Because my dad, like so much of what he was working on in this lifetime, he didn't integrate until he crossed. Right. And Some of it was in his case, he suffered a frontal lobe brain injury at the age of four that really did a number on him and inhibited his ability to articulate things, to, you know, understand fully what was going on. And it wasn't until he was freed of the body that he could take a lot of the experiences that he had in this life and make sense of them. And so that's the other part of it is like, just because it looks like somebody's living a life of failure doesn't
2: mean that they're not exactly where they need to be. They are always exactly where they're supposed to be is the message that I get. And I love that. And again, we don't understand necessarily the journey of each individual soul. And, you know, how they are choosing to do their learning, do their growth, what they are here to do. And again, it's your image of the bus. Like, you know, you are not qualified to drive that
1: bus. I am not qualified. I don't have my legs are not long (laughs) enough. You know, this is like the blessed mother's bus. Like this is divine source, but you know, like mother, father, God is the driver, not me. And it is absurd for me to think that I can put myself in the driver's seat of like the universal school bus. It's like, no, I am not capable of doing that. Right. And and having that perspective about like, Many many years ago, I was in Sedona, and I write about this in the book. But it was like right before the Obama McCain election, and so we are hiking Cathedral Rock, and I'm pray- I knew that the rock amplifies your intentions, and so I'm praying, and I'm praying, and I'm not praying for an outcome. I'm praying best possible outcome, best possible outcome, best possible outcome, praying it the entire hike up. And I probably we hike for maybe I don't know hour, hour and a half, two hours or something, and I get to the top of the rocks. And I put my hands up on the rocks to sort of introduce myself and to say hello to them. And I heard clear as day in my head, I hear them say to me, we mean you no disrespect, but please, allow yourself to be insignificant. And... (laughs) I love that. Isn't that amazing? And a lot of people are really offended when I say that. They're really offended by the idea of being insignificant. But we are insignificant. We are a blip. And even in terms of the life of the planet, she will go on long after we as a species have, like, you know, turned off the last light and, you know, left our shoes in the shoe room. Like... She will go on. And what the rocks showed me was the ephemeralness of each individual life, of like the smallness of how fleeting these existences that feel so significant to us are really fleeting. And that while we are deeply precious and deeply loved and deeply valued and deeply adored, we are also just this flash in the pan we are nothing and that brought me such a sense of comfort like (sighs) this is such a temporary period of time this whole birth pangs and transformation and like struggles as a species to figure all this stuff out it
2: is so incredibly temporary Right. I love that. Yeah. And it releases the heaviness of the responsibility and lets you actually bring your full majesty to this earth, right? Because you're, yeah. not, you're not trying to control everything, everyone, like you can just exhale and breathe and be who you are and be that flash of light that is, you know, collectively the most beautiful, brilliant thing that we could ever imagine. Yeah. oh, so I love that. All right, I know that you have a side gig as an Akashic Records reader. I do. Meaning, you know, you know about this whole past life thing and, and how, you know, this isn't our only go-round. The question that's coming to me, Jen, is do you see when you're doing Akashic Records reading for people, do you ever see any patterns with empaths and with being an empath? Ha. Huh. I know. Oh, what an amazingly
1: interesting question. So, so the way that I work with the Akashic Records is that I actually don't just go in and read the books for people and tell them what I see. I actually lead people into the record halls I introduce them to their record keepers and together we look at the book. So I show them how to access their room. I show them how to access the, the halls. I show them how to access their record keeper. And then their record keeper brings them the most important book. And then from that, you know, the record keeper will open it up for them or they might open it themselves. And then I'll be like, what do you see? So for me, the work is very much about an ongoing dialogue and an ongoing conversation. and. I'm just trying to think of this. It's like what I definitely have noticed with the work is that I can see threads of patterns with whatever issue somebody's bringing in as it, how it relates from this life, from this life, from this family programming, from these pieces, that there's often multiple pieces that are all weaving together and weaving into it. And I'm just thinking, considering that pretty much anybody who finds their way to me is an empath, I'm seeing, like, I'm not sure if I see anybody other than empaths. But what I am doing with the work is that I'm looking for the issue that is coming up for them. But one of the issues that seems to be a very, very common, like very much an issue that many of us are working through in this time, in this incarnation, and have brought through from multiple ones is like the fear of being seen, visibility, you know, like anxiety around visibility, the message that it's not safe to shine, that it's not safe to put ourselves out there, that it's not safe to speak the truth. And the fear of, retaliation, the fear of retribution, all of that, like sort of witch wound, persecution fear, visibility fear. That seems to be something that is fairly consistent and in general is fairly consistent with most of the people I work with, not only with doing Akashic Record work, but also just in general. Got it. Yeah. And what's your own history with that? Um yeah, I mean <laughs> I came in with an incredible amount of past life terror. I came in with memories of being burned. I came in with, I had an absolute terror about the house being burned down as a child, like house fire fear. I remember, like I knew I was magical. You know, I was a witch for Halloween, many, 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 if I wasn't a witch, I was like a vampire or I was like an old timey Victorian lady. But I knew I was magical even as a very small child. But I also... Definitely came in with an incredible amount of. If you let your gifts out into the world, you will be smushed. Right. So, absolutely a journey that I've been through.
2: Yeah. And continue to go through. I just always know that whoever walks into my office is always exactly what I need to learn, or I've just learned, or I'm in the process of learning, or any of the above. Yeah. No, I love that, and I do think that that's a theme for a lot of people. Yeah. A lot of empaths, and also a lot of people moving into their own creative gifts, intuitive gifts and also just people that are really ready to live more authentically and live in greater alignment with their higher selves, right? because you know, a lot of us have been around the block in enough bodies where, you know we we were not um, welcomed and honored for doing so. And I do feel like now if the time wasn't before, it is definitely now. It is definitely now. All right. This has been amazing. I can't believe we have to stop uh, or start to stop because I have so many more questions for you. And the last one I'm going to throw before we do the standards, because I feel that it's important, is, you know, we alluded way back to this idea and we're kind of coming full circle to it. This idea that, you know, where we get triggered by others, where we want to go and fix and heal, where we sponge up their stuff is often where we are still hurting. Yes. We are still, you know, wanting to heal ourselves you know, and you talked about sitting with your pain. Yeah. And I'm curious for you, what does that look like? Because, and I'm going to qualify it because, you know, I get a lot of people on the show that like, you got to sit with your pain and um, I'm not against it. (laughs) I think we do have to be present and wherever we resist, you know, things will persist. And I also understand too, if that pain feels overwhelming right now, be kind to yourself. Absolutely. And the biggest thing that you can do is wherever you're at, give yourself, A whole lot of love because to me, that is where it's all at. But what does that process look like for you? So, the first
1: thing that comes to my mind is I want to clarify something. There is a really, really big difference between sinking into our bodies, being in our heart, and sitting with the truth of the emotion we are feeling at the moment and being in the true essence of what we are in versus going into the narrative and perseverating. On the story. And the thing is that a lot of people, in my experience, go into the story, not the actual feeling. And sitting with the story is futile. Like there is no benefit to sitting with the story. There is no benefit to going through the narrative over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And I think that there are a number of people who think of perseverating. And like fretting and retelling the story again and again is the way to sit with the pain. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about sinking into my body and sinking into my heart and feeling the tenderness of whatever it is that is present within myself, acknowledging the stuff that I may be feeling from the world outside of me and like offering it back out, like just sending it back to wherever it belongs. I don't know where it belongs, just sending it back and letting it be, but then sitting with, what does this tenderness feel like in my body? What does this tenderness feel like in my heart? And then being present with it with an incredible amount of love and compassion. It is not about going back into the narrative. It's not about sinking into the resentment. It's not about sinking into the idea of this was completely wrong. And what I find is that if I sit with the pain in the sense of, or sit with the emotion, that if I'm just willing to just bear witness to the emotion, like weather, it generally, I mean, every so often, yes, you have a hurricane that takes a couple days to go through and it does some pretty big damage. But most of the time, weather shifts pretty rapidly. And pain or emotions also shift very rapidly when we don't resist them. So I think sometimes what people see as sitting with the pain is actually perseverating, And going into the narrative, which is ultimately a way to avoid feeling feelings because we're up in our head, not in our heart. So for me, it's always about sinking into my body, sinking into my heart. And also as a master trainer for EFT International, you might imagine that tapping and just holding the space by tapping is a big part of how I can be present to what I am feeling. That's
2: beautiful. That's beautiful. I'm so glad I asked that question. I'm so glad you did too. It's such a beautiful explanation. And the guides reminding me too that even the word pain is a story, right? Because yes. when you're in that sensation, like, and I've talked kids through like bee stings before, which oh are yeah, kind of pleasant. When you are really present with your sensation, sometimes too, right? It's just sensation. It is just sensation. Some are more comfortable than others. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I was a beekeeper for a number of years.
1: And so I've experienced bee stings that are just absolutely ecstatic, you know, where it feels like sparkly heaven moving wow. through my entire body. And I've definitely had the experience of bee sting where it's like, oh, this is not fun. Right. I'm much more of a fan. I mean, wasp stings, on the other hand, not such a fan. But yeah. I agree with you that like even the interpretation of like calling something pain You know, like if we can just back off and experience, like acknowledge this is an emotion. This is a tender sensation. You know, I'm here with this. But again, like not necessarily labeling it. Also approaching things with curiosity. Yes. As opposed to approaching things as if we know what it is.
2: Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. All right. We're going to have another conversation because we could talk about this all day. But we could talk forever. Yeah. I'm getting that that feeling but in paying attention to the the time that we have been talking yeah. so far i ask every guest on the show how do you experience your intuition
0: mm.
1: i experience my intuition in a number of different ways i experience my intuition in a deeply felt sense Like a an embodied sense of yes and no, and the feeling of sort of the leaning in and leaning towards, and the feeling of like, yes, this is aligned, or that feeling of like, oh, this does not feel right. And so it's very, very felt, like within my gut, like literally kind of in my belly, in my solar plexus, in my heart. And then I also experience, I'm not sure if I would call it intuition, but I also experience like my guides. Who talk to me and either sometimes send me like thoughts that are just sort of fully formed. Sometimes they speak, and I hear like not, I don't hear words outside my head, but I hear like a voice inside my head that's telling me, say this, say this, say this, you know. And sometimes I experience it in the form of, you know, visual stuff where it's like I can see kind of like the movie in front of my face. So it feels to me like there's the intuition that is more of the embodied felt sense of things that is so sort of in my body. And then there's the kind of divine guidance that tends to more inhabit the upper, like sit in my sort of like be from throat, third eye to crown chakra, where it feels like the information is sort of like I'm receiving information. But part of it is that what I find is the distinction for me between perseverating worry, Jennifer's ego being involved in it versus coming from something different than me is that when it comes from something different than me it just feels like information. When it's coming from my stuff it feels urgent and it feels stressful and it feels like worrisome and and then all of a sudden I'm like, you know, like taking it and running with it. So I can generally tell when something is intuition also because there isn't an emotional charge in the same way to it as there is when it is more of my fear and my worry
2: and my concern. Yeah. Amen. That was beautiful. All right, my friend, this has been great. I know we're going to do this again because I just just think we are. But in the meantime, as we wrap up for listeners, uh, if people want to find your book, if they want to find you, if they want to work with you, can you tell us quickly uh, where to find you and what that would look like?
1: Okay. So easy peasy if you want to get a copy of the book empathicmasterybook.com and if you want to listen to my podcast which Victoria's is- graciously said she wanted to, or was willing to trade a swap. And so she'll be joining me at some point in the not hopefully terribly distant future, depending on when this airs. That's empathicmasteryshow.com. You see a theme going on. And if you want to learn about how to work with me in a number of different ways from being involved in my free Facebook group, all the way to doing very, very high touch, bespoke one-on-one long-term mentoring, go over to empathicmastery.com. Come, That is easy to remember. Easy. And
2: we'll have it all in the show notes too. Perfect. Jen, thank you so much. This was great. I'm so glad we connected.
1: Oh, Victoria, I'm so glad we connected. I'm so glad. And thank you, Laura, for hooking us up. And also for Podmatch for hooking us up. Because I know. you and I got hooked up within a week, like or two weeks in two different ways. Yeah. yeah.
2: And that's how you know. That's how you know it's a thing. That is how you know. Yeah. Laura said, Oh, you have to talk to Jen. And then when I reached out to Jen, she's like, I just reached out to you on PodMatch. Yeah. So yeah, that's how you know. And those of you who found our conversation today, that's how you know too. So yeah. Exactly. (laughs) There's always those beautiful synchronicities. And I want to take a minute, too, to thank all of the listeners for tuning in, because I wouldn't get to do this without you. And I hope you loved it as much as I did. And namaste. Namaste. Thank you so much for joining us today. I hope that you found joy, strength, inspiration, and clarity from today's episode. Thank you so much again, and namaste. I'm Victoria Moran. Since we launched the Main Street Vegan podcast back in 2012, lots more people have discovered the way that moving in a vegan direction can infuse our lives with vitality, spirituality, and compassion.